BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. One of the first things that I teach my biological psychology students is that there is a problem when we think about the mind and the brain as being separate entities. Separating the mind from the brain is called a dualist perspective, where you have these two elements. It's something, though, that takes a bit of time for people to understand that it might be wrong. It's natural, almost, to think of the mind and brain as separate things. I mean, I have a hard time myself, oftentimes, not thinking about my thoughts and and my tastes and my preferences as being tied to the biological organ inside my skull. And then when I think of the essence of who I am, it's hard to tie that to just the sort of biological meat of my body, even though I understand that all of my thoughts, feelings, experiences, memories are etched into the electrochemical circuitry of my brain. Why is it so hard for us to internalize that concept? Well, this week's guest, Iris Berendt, is going to answer just that. Our beliefs about how our brains work, about how our minds work, involve stories that we tell ourselves on a day-to-day basis to explain our own and others' behaviors. And they shape our thinking about mental illness, free will, the afterlife. But as Iris Berendt points out, many of these stories are misguided. We, she says, the storytellers, are blind. Iris Berendt, welcome to Inquiring Minds. So nice to be with you, Indra. So I want to start by telling our listeners what these two kind of innate ideas, or, or sort of, I, I should say, I don't even know, native ideas, how, how do you want to say them, that, that we all have that, that you think are actually incorrect? Our two suspects, the ones that mess up how we think, you mean? Yes, yes. Okay, so there are two s- suspects in crime, and one is called dualism, and the other is called essentialism. And your listeners might be familiar with those ideas from philosophy, but we aren't talking philosophy at all. We're not talking about philosophical doctrines. Rather, we talk about principles that guide 
how lay people think intuitively. We're talking children, possibly infants, illiterate people, people who are not aware that this is how they think. But there is a ton of evidence in psychology that suggests that when we think, we instinctively rely on two broad frameworks. One is essentialism, which guides how we think about innateness, how we think about what makes us who we are innately. The other is dualism that governs how we think about bodies and minds and how they differ from each other. And the big idea is in my book is that these two suspects are in conflict with each other. So there is ton of evidence from previous research that shows that each of them has a bunch of crimes that it's responsible for, meaning it biases how we think. What has not been previously noticed is that those two principles actually conflict with each other. And when you look at what they do, it's a bunch of dead bodies <laughs> out there, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, so now we've sort of laid them out there. And I and because I think a lot of our listeners do have a philosophical background, let's sort of talk about each one in turn and what you mean by them specifically. So let's start with dualism, which, you know, for the neuroscientist is kind of our Achilles heel, this idea that the mind and the brain can be separate. Um, it's something that we struggle not to do, not to include in how our descriptions of the brain all the time. And it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard not to have a dualist perspective. Right. And indeed, when people try to understand what neuroscience is doing, it's precisely dualism that's responsible for some of our troubles. But what intuitive, so intuitively, people think about minds as different from bodies, right? They think that, so if you simply ask people to say, what happened if you took you and we copied you? So if there was this imaginary copy machine that you put a person in and duplicate their body. The question is, what are you going to get out? And people would say, yeah, you'll have your hair color and you have two hands and, and so forth. But will your copy know your name? Will they know the name of your spouse? Will they know what time the train comes home? Well, all those things you don't. On the other hand, if we ask you what happens in the afterlife after you die, even it turns out that even people who deny uh, the afterlife who say, no, no, it's all gone. It turns out when you really look at the data carefully, you see that even they assume that when you die, some of your ideas actually remain and are maintained with you in the afterlife. So together, those two perspectives tell us that we think about bodies and minds as separate from each other. They doubly dissociate, in fact, in so far as when we think what happens when we duplicate the body, it's not all our psychological traits that, or it's not all our traits that transfer, the physical traits transfer, the psychological traits for the most part do not. On the other hand, when we think about what happens when we do something to the mind, and now it is the properties of our psyche that are going to be maintained, whereas our physical properties are not. So this tells us that intuitively we think about the mind and body as separate. And there's good reason to think it's not just a Western thing. We see it, you know, beliefs in afterlives are so pervasive cross-culturally, and that suggests strongly that the separation of mind and body is in fact quite general. There is even a little bit of experimental cross-cultural work that suggests that that's the case. 
I mean, even when we talk about things like from a neuroscience perspective, like, oh, your brain is controlling your body. I mean, even that, even that language is problematic, right? Oh, well, yeah, totally. And and that, in fact, is part of our enormous fascination with, you know, imaging and, and, and brain scans, actually having evidence that you think, which shouldn't be surprising if we were in dualist, right? Because where else, you know, would you expect this to happen? And, you know, one thing that I, I talk about and think about a lot uh, or get asked about a lot is muscle memory because I, I sort of work in the music in the brain field. And so like, you know, people talk about muscle memory and I keep saying, well, muscle memory is really in your brain, but that is also then a dualist perspective. Yeah, possibly. And the fact that we are trying to look for the muscle, the bodily instantiation of our mental life is something that you see all over cognition, not just in music cognition, in fact. Okay, so that's dualism. So let's talk now about essentialism and how these are, the two of them are, are opposing. So essentialism is the intuitive belief that living things are what they are because they're born with some innate essence that is immutable. So for example, if kids are asked, what makes a doggy brown like its mother, what they're telling you is there is some essence that this dog got from its mother and that's what makes it what it is, some innate essence that it obtained. And there's a lot of literature that suggests that. So think people think about the essence like it's not going to change, it's immutable, and people apply this way of thinking over and over to many aspects of living things. Interestingly, when you inspect this literature carefully, you see that when lay people think about this essence, they really align it with the body. So the children that talk about this dog, they say it's a tiny piece of matter that the doggy got from its mother. People think about the essence as sometimes they identify with some bodily substance, such as blood. Children, and in fact, even infants think about the essence as if it's in the insides of the body and it must be in some piece of matter in the body. So Maybe you're beginning to see that there might be a little bit of tension between this and dualism, because when we think about what makes us who we are innately, we are thinking essentialism and we are thinking there must be something in our body that makes us who we are. Yet when we think about what allows us to think, where our ideas, we think about the psychological life and particularly our abstract ideas as part of the mind distinct from the body. So, you know, if we think that what innateness must lie in the body, whereas we think about ideas as separate from the body in the mind, that it follows that ideas can't be innate. They are simply in the wrong place for being innate as far as our intuitive cognition is concerned. And this is really kind of a perfect storm, right? It's this conflict between dualism and essentialism is bound to bias us, if that's true indeed, it's bound to bias us in specific ways in how we reason about ideas and how we reason about psychology in general. It tells us that when we try to, when we look at inside and we think about our psychological capacities and think, which of them are innate? So, you know, if you get your newborn from the hospital, right, and you're thinking, what is downloaded, right? What is in there at the moment this baby is born? Then you're thinking, those capacities that I can link to the body, such as maybe visions, maybe audition, maybe emotions, because you think that, you know, the emotions are somehow in the face. 
all those intuitively seem pretty reasonable for us to assume that these are innate because these are all part of the body where our innate essence presumably resides. But if you think, can this young newborn recognize concepts such as, do they know what objects are like? Do they know what people are like? Do they know anything about music? Do they have a notion of tonality? Do they understand anything about language structure? The intuition is no way, right? It cannot possibly be innate. Why? Because all those are these ethereal things that are not in the body. They are in the mind, so they are in the wrong place for being innate. And that leads us to this you know, strict segregation between ideas, which we consider as ethereal in the mind and therefore not innate, whereas other capacities which we can anchor to the body, we consider we have no problem assuming that those might be innate. So if this analysis is correct, and some of the data from my lab suggests that possibly it is, then it suggests that when we lay people come to consider some of the big questions of philosophy, right, where knowledge comes from, we are not approaching it as an unbiased observer, but rather we're coming with some very strict notions about how innateness works and therefore what could possibly be innate. So I want to get to what this means in terms of the biases that we bring when we consider, you know, our own human nature. Um, But first, let's talk a little bit about sort of, well, so then what is innate? Uh, Because, uh, you know, you you start out your your book with what infants know. (laughs) Um, So give us a kind of overview of, of what we know about what infants know. So there is actually a pretty large literature in infant cognition that suggests that there are several aspects of ideas that are actually innate. There might be some technical discussions in the field of cognitive science to try to characterize what exactly do we mean and are they concepts or are these perceptual systems that are the basis of concept. But these are really very quibbles. The bottom line is that if you look at infants and newborns, there is systematic evidence that suggests that, for example, newborns possess intuitive physics. They know what objects are and how they behave. For example, think about an object and how it moves, right? So if you saw two balls, one approaching towards the other, like two billiard balls, if the stationary ball is is standing there, right, and another ball comes to it, you would expect the stationary ball to only move by contact. Well, how did you get to this conclusion? Did you see one ball and another ball and and therefore made the induction? Or do you have some a priori uh, expectations about how objects uh, interact? And it turns out it's the latter. So these experiments have been done in newborns. And in fact, infants have very specific ideas about how objects behave, that they have to be cohesive, that they uh, need to move in uh, by contact uh, and on continuous paths. And this is work that was suggested by Elizabeth Spelke and confirmed by her research and others. This is one example. There are many other examples. It's it's so fascinating to think about because I think that, you know, the, the, the dogma is that babies are born with, you know, a, a certain curiosity, but they learn through experimentation. You know, I'm thinking of Alison Gopnik's work and, you know, her book, Babies Are Scientists, about how they're, 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 they're trying to solve all these problems. But a, as you suggest, there are sort of, you know, there are preconceived notions, perhaps, that they come in with. And so when 
a child is born without those preconceived notions, I can imagine that things would be quite different in terms of their developmental experience. So I'm not aware of work about infants born without this particular concept, but sure, if there would be a disability that affected them, then the infant was going to be quite different. You know, there is a broader question about what happens when you have a learning mechanism that is devoid of these capacities. And my colleague Gary Marcus and I have been pushing this idea that uh, it's exactly the elimination of these capacities that stands in the way of developing a better AI, for instance. But this is, you know, that that, that's that would be an example of, you know, another implication of blank slate. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later. I was talking about kids that are just born with a different you know, their their developmental trajectory is different and maybe not in this specific way. But, you know, I was thinking of uh, kids who eventually might be diagnosed with dyslexia. So dyslexia is actually one of the things that I uh, happened to do some research on. Infants with dyslexia, it turns out that their problem is a little different. It's not lack of knowledge specifically. It's problems in sound processing, speech processing in many of them that, in fact, you actually see in newborns. And when you take a newborn, you test them for speech processing, uh, you see that infants who come at risk to dyslexia respond to speech differently. This has been shown. But there the issue is not so much about lack of knowledge. It's more kind of a lack of tuning in, in speech perception, possibly. But thinking about another example, autism uh, comes to mind. So the work of Ron Cohen suggests that autism arises in part from problem or from uh, an impairment in theory of mind. Theory of mind is the ability to reason about the minds of others, um, knowing that other people can know things that you don't know. This is something that typical infants show spontaneously, not at birth, but uh, reasoning about the minds of others can be seen in young infants. And the one of the explanations for what goes awry in autism is precisely theory of mind. As a side remark, it's exactly this notion that minds are different from bodies. So we talked about intuitive physics. We're not talking about intuitive theory of mind. Both are present in infants. Each of them operates by different principles, and it's the different difference between them that could very well lay the foundation for our dualist thinking. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about sort of what the implications then are of these 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 in, innate concepts of dualism and essentialism for the way that we think about our own nature. So. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what those, I don't know, did you call them the, the dead bodies that we need to climb over in order to understand ourselves? Yes. Yeah, so I don't know, maybe I, I can preface that with a little bit of a personal story about my experience with and how I got to all that, because I was really, you know, I've been doing, actually, I, I should say, I started my career doing music cognition. This is how I started <laughs> this journey. I was interested in innateness in music cognition, in question of universals in music cognition. I did some course cultural work uh, and, and I thought, well, the only way to address this question is to go to cognitive psychology. And that's how things started. I then had a very long stand doing language. Music was just too difficult for the, at the time, although I did do some work on that as well. And I stayed close to music in a way, in some way, looking at phonology, the sound structure of language, but really asking questions about innateness. So I was the, the reason why 
language was such a good substitute to for music. Even I was what I really wanted to do was innateness in music. The reason why I went to language is because both allowed us to shed line, light on mus- on human nature and answer the question of what makes us who we are. So I've been doing this work on language and trying to ask what is the basis of the human capacity for language? Why is it the case that every you know typical child acquires language fully, whereas a cat that is you know, raised in the same household, exposed to exactly the same language, never gets much in the way of language. And the question, you know, the big idea that Chomsky suggested is, well, maybe human infants are born with some innate principles of language that give them a little bit of a start in the process of language acquisition and therefore help them acquire language. So from my perspective as a cognitive scientist, this is totally an empirical question. You know, you roll up your sleeves, you go to the lab and run the experiments and you're going to find out. But it turns out that when I was going to cocktail parties and people were asking me, so what are you doing? And I was asking, are there innate rules of language? And even putting the notion of rule aside, which is super complicated, just asking, is there something about language that we are born with? People were looking at me like, I was very funny, right? (laughs) I'm saying something very, very strange, and I couldn't understand why, right? We know that there is an innate basis for the design of our body. There is a reason why we are not born with wings. There is a reason why we are born with disposition for cancer, say. So why can't innateness be responsible for knowledge? Now, we may be wrong and knowledge may not be innate and knowledge of language and knowledge of music could all come from experience. That's perfectly fine. But it's a question that one can ask. It's a perfectly well-found question and one that, and, 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 you know, there's nothing special about that. And my sense was that people don't look at that that, that way, that for people asking, the mere asking of question about innate knowledge is really some kind of heresy. And I, I never understood that. So, you know, I was going with that in my, you know, stomach for a very long time and felt that's something that's very strange until one day it kind of occurred to me, maybe it's a thing, right? Maybe there is something behind that. Maybe people actually are biased and maybe there are reasons why we're, they are biased. And from that, that was really the beginning of this book, which simultaneously was also the beginning of a new research program in which I said, you know, let's find out because, you know, we are trained as scientists. We can't open our mouth until we had run some experiments that gave some preliminary support for that. And it turns out that these things did check out. So, so then we just in the lab started doing work that asks, what do people think is innate? So is it the case that people really think that ideas of all kind can't possibly be innate? And if so, can we really link it to this conflict between dualism and essentialism? Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All in one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt 1 Plus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. So yeah, so let's talk about what you found. So so this is playing with fire, right? Every time you, you talk about innateness in cognitive science, you are inviting. Um, it, it raises a lot of controversy and part of that for good reasons, because the science behind innateness is super difficult and it's really difficult to do these experiments properly. And that could potentially be a problem, right? Because if you don't really know what's innate and how can you go and, and accuse people of biases if you don't know the answer yourself? So here are some things that I did, right? So one thing that one can do is start with, not with questions. So innateness is an explanation of what's going on, whereas what can be demonstrated is that there are certain concepts that are available to newborns and very young infants, and these are known facts. These experiments have been done. So what's one way that we approach this question was present people with those experiments. So tell them, okay, you play the scientist now. Here is the question. Here is how one can test it. For example, there are these famous idea uh, experiments that show that three-month-old infants prefer creatures that help others to creatures that impede others' goals. So if you see a creature, so uh, the work of Hamling, uh, Paul Bloom, and uh, Karen Wynn, you see this creature trying to go up the hill, and, and then comes another creature and either helps it move by pushing it up the hill or you know impeding it by pushing it down on the opposite of the dimension. The question that they ask is whether the rudimentary morality that's behind it, namely helping is good, or something along those lines, is that something that infants know? Well, they did the experiments, and it turns out that infants indeed prefer looking at the helper. Later on, when they can grab the helper creature, they would do that. And, and so there's a lot of evidence that suggests that this is indeed something that young infants already do. Well, you can present the same experiment to lay people with exactly the same scenario as it was done and ask them, Tell us what infants will do. Would they actually prefer the helper or, you know, sit on the fence? And people say, no way. There's no way that, you know, young infants or newborns would do that. Um, you can ask them other questions such as, what about syllable structure? So we know that that's actually my own work, that across languages, syllable like blah are good. Syllables like lba, lba are bad. Well, what would infants, what would newborns do? Would their brains respond differently to one compared to the other? We know the answer. It was done. Uh, results suggest that human brains indeed 
respond more readily to the syllables that are better across languages. But our participants say, no way. So all these examples, and there were several other examples, all those examples of innate ideas, possibly people rejected completely. But when we ask them, so what about, you know, happy, uh, what about emotions, right? Would the infant prefer happy faces to angry faces? This experiment was done too. And the answer is no, infants do not prefer happy. Newborn infants still do not show that. People actually here were completely happy to say that emotions are innate. And in another line of work, we show that people think that, you know, hunter-gatherers will recognize facial emotions, you know, uh, spontaneously. This is extremely controversial these days. And all kinds of biases that show that people are all too happy to assume that emotions are innate, that sensations of being able to squat down or to see are innate, whereas all ideas collectively, lay people do not think that they could possibly innate. It's so interesting to me that like, and I, I fall prey to that too. I talk about emotions as being sort of, you know, the the primitive, the instinct, the the gut feeling, you know, all of these terms that we use kind of have this idea that it just comes from you, that it's not, it's, you, you know, you have, it's not something you learn. It's not something that you can control. And yet, and thinking is, you know, that like, that my thoughts are something that, uh, yeah, that, that I have control over. So can you talk a little bit about sort of this, you know, this difference in how we think about our emotions and how we think about our ideas and um, the evidence that that model that we have is incorrect. So there are two parts to your question. One is what the science is telling us, right? What we know about the innateness of ideas and emotions, and the other is how late people think about it. What the science is telling us, so I briefly touched on some of the infant cognition research that suggests that, yes, infants have an innate notion of objects of intuitive physics. They have intuitive psychology. They, uh, it's not in newborns. This one you see later in life, but there are good reasons to think that this is not because they're just learning it later, but rather that this is an innate capacity. Infants have a concept, have some rudimentary basis of language. For example, the work on syllable structure has been done in newborn, newborns. Um, uh, infants have a rudimentary notion of number. They know, for example, that four lights and four sounds share something in common. They share this number in common, distinct from four versus eight, 12, for instance. This too has been shown in newborns. So there is a bunch of, and you know, this is not by no means an exhaustive list. There is a bunch of, as Elizabeth Spelke called them, core knowledge principles that have been demonstrated in newborns and suggest at least it opens up the possibilities that ideas are innate are innate. And the question is not so much do we know for sure, but rather this is certainly a plausible possibility. And for lay people it isn't. So for me it's this denial of this possibility that 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 is is puzzling. Uh, with respect to emotions, I I think you had my colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett on your show. Yep. Did yep. you? We uh, did. Yeah. Uh, and so Lisa and I actually do not see cognition eye at, to eye at all, or even though we're very good friends. I have a lot of respect to her interest, intellect. I think she's wrong. <laughs> but this being said, Lisa was actually a co-author on the emotion paper that we did because what we could agree on is the fact that, so let me explain the, the debate here. 
I think she has produced very strong evidence that the facial manifestations of emotions possibly are not innate and possibly are not universal. I think this evidence is convincing. It's another question to ask, are emotions as affective categories innate? And this does not necessarily require to say anything about facial expressions of emotions. There are no reason to believe that the two are one and the same. And in fact, one wonders why it's the case that in a lot of the affective science literature, people have almost been treating them as one and the same in as much that the evidence for, say, universality of emotions cross-culturally has been gleaned almost exclusively from looking at whether people recognize facial emotions. Whereas I don't know that you know, it would be very convenient if they do, and it looks like possibly they don't. But that does not negate the possibility that emotions as affective computations are possibly innate. So when I say it's notice that in my experiments, I ask people about recognizing facial expressions of emotions. So would you know, infants recognize happy faces versus angry faces as such, it's very different from asking whether the emotions as categories are innate. I think there is a good reason uh, for why people equate emotions with their bodily expressions. Essentialism tells us exactly the answer, because when we think about innateness, we are primed to anchor whatever is innate in the body. So we're primed to, you know, search it in the face, for instance, externally. And we tend to equate emotions and their facial manifestations as if they were one and the same. And I, I don't see why that should be the case. So looking at the signs, certainly with respect to facial expression of emotions, they probably are not innate, although this is still debated, but I think if solely we, we, we can assume that's the case. Lay people do assume that facial expressions of emotions are innate. Ideas, here, lay people think, no way. My reading of the literature actually suggests quite possibly there is some good reasons to think that that's the case. Now, it's not only, you know, the, bed, the dead bodies there are gleaned from two sources of evidence, right, if we play the detective here. And one is just the fact that people get it wrong, that they state there's no way ideas are innate, but look at all this evidence from infants that suggest that that's possibly the case. The second is not so much the conclusion, but rather how you got to the answer. And what my work has shown is that for people to assume whether or not emotions are innate or whether or not ideas are innate or whether or not, say, psychiatric symptoms or dyslexia is innate, the way people conclude is by looking at, can I link it to the body? Can I see it in the brain? Can I you know, link it to an organ of the body? And that way of thinking, concluding whether or not something is innate from its bodily manifestation, that's totally wrong because, of course, science tells us that everything, you know, all our cognitive uh, processes happen in the brain. So whether or not you see something in the brain is absolutely no indication of whether or not it's innate. Our reasoning, our heuristic of using embodiment as evidence for innateness is completely wrong itself. So it's both the conclusion that is highly suspicious and moreover, it's the method of reasoning that is, is plainly wrong. 
So I want to remind our listeners that Iris Barron's book, The Blind Storyteller, How We Reason About Human Nature, is available at booksellers everywhere. And I, it's such a great title, The Blind Storyteller. Um, it speaks to what you just sort of we c- came up to now, which is that that there is a, an active mechanism, you know, in terms of how we think about human nature that is, is, is storytelling and is blind. So can you give us a sort of a sense of, of, of why you titled the book this way and, and what you really mean by the blind storyteller. There is a note to Dawkins and there is a, a, a note to the antiquity, right? To the Greeks and to know thyself uh, who told us that that's what we should be doing. And, and I just think that that's what describes the, <laughs> the findings. Well, so the note to Dawkins is, is for the blind, uh, is it the blind watchmaker? Yes. 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 So, so tell us a little bit about sort of like, where the idea of the blind watchmaker, which is this notion, as far as I, I remember, that there isn't a designer uh, when it comes to, you know, our, our brains and evolution and, and so forth. So how do you think about in terms of the blind storyteller? Are you thinking about sort of the way that we construct a model of our own minds or sort of metacognition? Or is it something different? No, it's exactly this. But I, I'm not sure if I would use the term metacognition. It's just my good my friend and colleague, Stephen Pimker, when he described that, this work, he said, this is the psychology of psychology. And I think, you know, that, that that's is indeed true. We're our best subject, right? What is more interesting than understanding ourselves, right? This, this is what we worry about 80% of the time, both ourselves and understanding the psyche of others. So this interest, I don't know that it's metacognition, it's just what we're interested in. This is one of our major preoccupations. And we really care about getting it right. It's very important for us to try to understand how our minds work and how the minds of others work. And science is one way of doing it, but people are doing it all the time from very young age, thinking about it. And um, this book has tried to unveil the principles, some of the principles that that guide this reasoning um, and what happens when they collide and some of the casualties of of this perfect storm between dualism and essentialism. And I should say, you know, we just scratched the surface uh, and and there's so many interesting things in the book um, about, you know, there's a there's a whole section on the rich mental lives of infants about language, about their social interactions, about objects and numbers. Then there's this what we've been talking about the most, which is this idea of innate ideas. <laughs> and then we, we, we barely touched sort of the the emotional part. But then you also have uh, a section on health and disease, uh, mental disorders, dyslexia, et cetera. And so there's there's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, but I wanted to just kind of end with uh, just a, a quick discussion of your coda, why it all matters. <laughs> so 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 tell us, you know what 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 are the sort of take home messages that you hope that people glean from this book and how that might apply to their own lives? At various levels, I think, right? So, we want to understand ourselves. This is very important for us. We want to understand where ideas come from, the nature versus nurture. You know, one of the major questions in our intellectual history, it turns out that we are predisposed to get it wrong. These notions that 
ideas are these cold things different from our emotions and that we think about them in opposite ways and about their innateness, this too um, it, it has implications to that. The implications to how we reason about the brain and how we reason about mental disorders, maybe we can touch on them for a second. So the issue with mental disorder is a very serious one, right? So there was this campaign in the beginning of the 20th century to try to make it into the era of the brain and in that light to present psychiatric disorders as diseases like all others. And presumably, if you understand this, schizophrenia is a brain disease, you should have no reason to uh, have any stigma or prejudice toward people who suffer from this disorder. But it turns out that as this campaign was launched, it almost backfired. Not only it didn't help, but in some cases, attitudes towards patients actually only got worse. People thought that if the disease in, is in the brain, then this is destiny, then it's not going to change, then you shouldn't be using therapy. You should only, I mean, psychotherapy, but rather only be using drugs. And all those things really come from the same principles. They come from the same collision between intuitive dualism and essentialism. Again, if you think that your essence is in your body, in your brain, so when you tell people listen, major depression is in your brain, we can see it on the scan, you actually are not helping people, but rather you're telling them, first, you might have been born with that, and second, it's not going to go away because our essence is immutable. And we've done some work on that, and and that's exactly what we find when we ask lay people. It affects some of the attitudes about the brain. So I already gave you one example in which reasoning about the brain is irrational. There is a whole literature on that that shows that when you invoke the brain, and you really don't need to even give people imaging, just by virtue of saying it's in the brain, people think that all of a sudden your explanation is absolutely great, which is, of course, baloney. These principles explain it because... If you think about the brain as your essence, then when you tell them, you tell people it's in the brain, then in some way you are saying, well, this is super important. This is how you are born, what you're born with. On the other hand, per dualism, if you tell them in the brain, then you're saving them this huge problem of reckoning. How is it possible for thinking to affect behavior, right? So the big mystery for if you're a dualist, how is it possible that my thinking about my cup can make my hand move, right? But if you're saying it's not your thinking that's doing anything, it's not your ethereal mind that is doing anything, but rather it's your brain, it's a piece of matter, it's a piece of meat that is moving another piece of meat, then intuitive physics is happy, everybody is happy, and the problem is solved. So there is a reason why we think that brain imaging is so helpful. It actually solves this dissonance that otherwise we would experience by trying to link the effect of mind on the body. There are many other things in the book that we explore. I explore the notion of the effect of this uh, conflict when it comes to thinking about who we are really, this notion of the true self, what happens when we die. This too is is another dead body there. I briefly mentioned that uh, getting these questions wrong can actually affect our science and technology. So if our account of ourselves is we are these blank slates who start from nothing, then that suggests to us that if we are designing a learning algorithm, it should be able to bootstrap itself in the same fashion 
even if it's devoid of any innate knowledge, and, and that's highly questionable. So there are many areas in which not knowing ourselves can actually backfire from thinking about innateness to thinking about disorders, to thinking about neuroimaging, free will, technology. So I think many reasons to, to look inside. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. It certainly changed the way I think about thinking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I look forward to the direction in which your research heads next. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure talking to you, Andrea. Thanks so much. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare Exclusive Color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.